When the Apostle John came to the end of his gospel account bearing his name, he made a startling comment about all the things he had recorded in the 21 chapters of his book. He said this, And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. It is likely that John was using hyperbole and purposeful exaggeration when he wrote those words, but he said it that way on purpose because he wanted to emphasize the fact that Jesus did way more than what we have recorded for us in the Gospels. All four of the Gospel accounts are selective rather than exhaustive. In other words, each Gospel writer had to pick and choose what he recorded and what he left out. Of course, we know from what Scripture teaches in many places that this process was governed by and guided by the Holy Spirit of God so that what we have in the pages of Scripture is exactly what the Spirit of God wanted to be in the Word of God. Furthermore, even though the Gospel accounts are selective, the truth contained in them is sufficient to lead anyone to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and in a life that pleases Him. The Gospels present an accurate picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, a full picture of Him, a complete picture of Him, even though it is not exhaustive. There is no way any of them could be exhaustive. The books would be far too voluminous. Jesus did so much in the three and a half years he ministered, that if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. His days were filled with preaching and teaching and training and healing and casting out demons and interacting with people. In addition, he pulled away for times of prayer with the Father and he pulled his disciples aside for times of instruction and equipping. Also, he had to travel on foot everywhere he went. We know he made several trips to Jerusalem each year because he was always present for Passover and the other major feasts on the Jewish calendar. The trip from up north in Galilee, where he had his ministry headquarters, down to Jerusalem would have taken several days each way, not counting the time he spent in the Jerusalem area when he traveled there. So to say that Jesus was a busy man would be an immense understatement. His months were full. His weeks were full. His days were full, often from morning till night and on into the evening. They were so full that it is easy to pass over statements in the Gospels that tell us just how busy Jesus was. The text to which we come this morning is one of those statements. It's found in Mark chapter 6. So please turn there with me to the Gospel of Mark, the second Gospel record, the sixth chapter. And we'll consider this little section tucked away right at the end of Mark chapter 6. Beginning in verse 53, we read these words. When they had crossed over... They came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. 
And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him, ran through that whole surrounding region, and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to to wherever they heard he was. Wherever he entered, into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. This is one of those passages in Scripture that we could easily pass over without stopping to contemplate or consider its implications. It comes right after the story of Jesus walking on the water, and it is followed by a confrontation Jesus had with the Pharisees. Two very important events in our, life, in our Lord's life and ministry. So our tendency is to read it quickly and then move on to the next story. But there is much for us to consider in this brief description of an event that occurred many, many times throughout the ministry of Jesus. It is clear that there were many times when Jesus came into some town or some village and was literally inundated with people who wanted something from him. Maybe they wanted to hear him preach, or they wanted to hear him teach, or maybe they wanted to see him do something miraculous. But most of the time, it was personal. What I mean is, most of the time, when people pressed to get to Jesus, it wasn't merely out of curiosity. It wasn't simply because they had heard about this guy. They wanted to see him and hear him and check him out. No, it was because they personally wanted him to do something for them or for a loved one. Maybe they wanted Jesus to heal them. Or heal a loved one. Or maybe they wanted him to deliver a loved one who was oppressed by a demon. It's understandable that people wanted these things from Jesus. After all, what other source did they have? What other option was there? When people became sick, there wasn't a walk-in clinic right down the road. There were very few doctors. And those who were doctors didn't have near the knowledge or ability that physicians have today. So when people became sick, their only option many times was simply to hope for the best. As a result, lots of people were sick for long periods of time, and often their sickness resulted in severe consequences, and in many cases, death. People died of things that today would be considered minor, simple, Things that would be very easy to fix, if you will. So when the word got out that there was a man in the land of Israel who could heal any and every affliction, it's no wonder that people flocked to him. People were desperate. And the same thing could be said about those who had someone in their family who was demon-possessed, which, as you know from your reading of the Gospels, was a very common occurrence, simply because when Jesus was on planet Earth... In the land of Israel, all the demons swarmed there. And so many people were demonized, demon-possessed. And there was no cure, no solution back then. There was a small group of Jewish exorcists, but their success was extremely limited. So when someone became demon-possessed, it was basically a hopeless situation. That's why the crowds were so desperate 
and willing to do whatever necessary to get people to this man, Jesus of Nazareth, the miracle worker. His reputation spread like a wildfire. And contrary to the impression that we may have of the towns and villages of Israel in the first century, the fact is there was quite a large population base from which to draw. Josephus tells us that Galilee alone, not, come out, not counting Samaria, Judea, other places around Syria, Decapolis, etc., Galilee alone had 240 cities and villages and close to 3 million people lived in the Galilee region. Judea, down in the south, also had many cities and villages, including the city of Jerusalem and all of its population. In addition, there was Samaria, the Decapolis, the region beyond the Jordan in the south, and Syria up in the northeast. So there were several million people scattered throughout the region, and many of them heard about this man who was able to deliver from demons and able to heal sicknesses. Jesus had become a sensation of sorts in the land of Israel and the regions surrounding. Therefore, wherever he went, it didn't take long for people to recognize him and to spread the word of where he was. I mean, you could just hear the word spreading. He's, there. He's, oh, he's in that village. He's in that town. He's come to our area. This resulted in a flurry of activity as people tried to get their loved ones to this man who was seen as their only hope of a cure for their specific ailment or predicament. And that's what we see in this amazing text before us. So let's consider it together. Verse 53 tells us, When they, that is a reference to Jesus and his disciples, when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and anchored there. Mark connects this description with the story of Jesus walking on the water as recorded in verses 45 through 52, which we considered last Lord's Day. That probably indicates that it occurred immediately afterwards. Now, the reason I say probably is because we can't always be certain that every event that follows another one in the gospel accounts did, in fact, follow. It may surprise you to hear that, but it's a fact. As I mentioned earlier, each gospel writer was selective in the material he included in his book. Not only were they selective in what was included and what was not included, they also put some of the, event, the events in the order that would best present the picture they were trying to highlight. In other words, the gospel accounts are not strictly chronological. They are basically chronological, but not always strictly chronological. You know this if you if you've ever tried to put together some kind of harmony of the Gospels. I mean, all you have to do is read the first few chapters of Matthew and come to the temptations of Jesus and the first few chapters of Luke and come to the temptations of Jesus and you find that they're not listed in the same order. You don't even get four chapters into those two Gospels and all of a sudden you have things that are not in the same chronological order. One Gospel writer may put this event before that one and another Gospel may have it the other way around. But that's the way the Gospels are put together. So it begs the question, why? Well, why is that the case? Because each Gospel writer had his own purpose concerning the picture he wanted to present of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, he arranged his material accordingly under the direction and guidance of the Holy Spirit. Now, please hear me when I say this. That does not mean that he arranged his material in such a way so as to to mislead people or manipulate the facts. It was an accurate reporting of the facts and organized in a certain way to accomplish specific purposes. And by the way, this was a common writing methodology at that time for presenting the story of someone's life. It was the way it was done. So the people of the day would have understood what was going on when they read these gospel accounts. They knew what they were reading. They would have known that they were reading accurate historical records, but they would not have assumed, contrary to what we sometimes assume, they would not have assumed that everything was arranged in exact chronology. All that to say that this event in verses 53 through 56 may have followed immediately after Jesus walked on the water, but we can't say that with absolute certainty. What we can say is that it, that it took place when Jesus and his disciples had crossed over the Sea of Galilee and landed at Gennesaret. Gennesaret is a beautiful, fertile plain on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was such a significant area that it actually gave the Sea of Galilee another one of its several names. That body of water is called by several different names, and in Luke 5.1 it is called the Lake of Gennesaret. Interesting title. Luke, as a Greek, didn't want to confuse his readers by calling it sea, thinking salt water, so he called it the Lake of Gennesaret. So Jesus and his disciples landed the boat at this location on this particular occasion. And when they did, it didn't take long for the word to get out that he was present. Mark tells us in verse 54, And when they came out of the boat, immediately the people recognized him. And what did they do in response? Verse 55, Ran throughout that whole surrounding region and began to carry about on beds those who were sick to wherever they heard he was. Now, beloved, try to picture what this was like. I mean, look at Mark's description there. People hear that, he, that Jesus is present over at this place, and off people go, running and carrying these little, you know, it's called a bed in my translation, but you know what it was like. It was sort of like two poles with some type of canvas or animal skin between it that they could carry a sick person or an inca- incapacitated person on to wherever he needed to, to be. As soon as Jesus' feet hit the shore and people began to recognize him, they ran to tell others and those others ran to tell others and those others ran to tell others until the word had spread to the entire surrounding region. People saw that this was their chance. I mean, think about life through their grid. They knew how limited their opportunities were. This was their chance. They had heard about this miracle worker who traveled around the land of Israel. But they were never sure where he was going to be. And even if they knew where he was going to be, many of them would not have been able to transport their infirm and afflicted loved ones to where Jesus was. It was just too far, too difficult, too impossible. But when they heard he was in their region, at least relatively close, they would do whatever it would take 
to gather up their afflicted loved ones, to bring them to Jesus for healing. You read these kinds of statements everywhere you turn around in the Gospels. But as I said earlier, unfortunately, we tend to probably pass over them fairly quickly and get onto the stories, you know, the events, the exciting things. But listen to this sampling. Matthew 12, 15 says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Matthew 14, 14 says, And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. Matthew 15, 30 says, Then great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, blind, mute, maimed, and many others, and they laid them down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. Matthew 19, 2 says, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Matthew 21, 14 says, Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Luke 4, 40 says, When the sun was setting, all those who had any that were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Luke 6, 17-19 says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and from the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and be healed of their diseases as well as those who were tormented with unclean spirits, and they were healed. And the whole multitude sought to touch him, for power went out from him and he healed them all. Luke 9, 11 says, But when the multitudes knew it, they followed him, and he received them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who had need of healing. No wonder Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 12, 17, For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and to hear what you hear. Why did Jesus do all of this healing? Why did Jesus do all of this delivering from demons? There are at least three reasons why. Compassion, validation, and salvation. Number one, Jesus did his miracles because of his immense compassion. Jesus loved people. He hurt to see people hurting. His heart broke when he saw the devastation caused by living in a fallen, sin-cursed world. He was moved with compassion when he saw people suffering the ravages of sickness and disease and death. He wept at the tomb of Lazarus even though he knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew what he was going to do. And yet as he stood there seeing these heartbroken sisters, Mary and Martha and the other family members, it broke his heart and he wept. Jesus entered into the anguish of other people. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, said the prophet Isaiah. We are told this about Jesus in Matthew chapter 9. Just listen as I read this. Matthew 9, 35 and 36 says, Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary. They were harassed. 
harassed by sin and its consequences. They were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion. That's one of the reasons why he did his miracles. He did his miracles because of compassion. Beloved, let's not have an imbalanced view of Jesus and ministry by assuming that the only thing that is important is a person's soul. Certainly it is true that the most important issue is a person's eternal destiny. And Jesus said the same thing when he said, For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? So Jesus himself emphasized that the most important issue in life is a person's eternal destiny. But listen, he didn't emphasize that with complete disregard for temporal suffering. He ministered to the body and the soul. He did his miracles because of compassion. Secondly, Jesus did his miracles as a validation. Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. And Hebrew scripture stated what the Messiah would do once he came. So it's obvious Jesus had to do what scripture said the Messiah would do. And what did scripture say? One one example, Isaiah 35, 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf, deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb shall sing. I mean, that's what was prophesied about the Messiah. That's what was stated that the Messiah would do. So Jesus performed his miracles as a validation of his claims, his messianic claims. He fulfilled prophecies in Hebrew Scripture that stated what the Messiah would do. In fact, you will remember that one story. It's it's just a story dripping with sadness where John the Baptist is in prison. He's confused. He can't figure out what's going on. So he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, Are you the one who's coming or should we look for another? In other words, I thought you were the Messiah, but now things aren't working out the way I thought they were going to work out. So are you the Messiah or are you not? Do you remember Jesus' response? Just to paraphrase, he said, you go back and tell John what's happening. Blind people are receiving their sight. Lame people are walking. Deaf are hearing. In other words, Jesus was saying, I'm right on schedule. I'm doing exactly what I'm supposed to be doing as the Messiah. His miracles were a part of his credentials. They were a validation. Thirdly, Jesus performed miracles for salvation. What I mean is Jesus performed miracles to point people to the fact that he was God in human flesh and his power was able to deliver not only from sickness but from sin. The goal of Jesus' miracles was to point people to their greatest need, which is salvation. His miracles were intended to give people evidence that he is the one sent from God to save us from our sins. That is specifically why the Apostle John recorded several miracles in his gospel account. He said this at the end of his gospel in John 20, 30, and 31. He says, And truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Here we go. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's it. That's why Jesus did miracles. He did them so people would believe he is the Christ, the Son of God. And when people truly come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, 
they find eternal life and salvation in him. So Jesus did his miracles for at least three reasons. Compassion, validation, and salvation. But catch this. This is what's remarkable. Not only did Jesus actively carry out healing, there's a sense in which he passively carried out healing. The next verse tells us about that. Verse 56. Wherever he entered into villages, cities, or the country, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and begged him that they might just touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched him were made well. You see, on this occasion, the people didn't ask Jesus to touch them, to heal them. Instead, amazingly, they asked if they could simply touch him or touch the hem of his garment. When Mark mentions the hem of his garment, it is almost certain that he is referring to one of the tassels that were sewn to the corners of a garment in order to remind the wearer to obey God's commandments as prescribed in Numbers 15.38 and Deuteronomy 22.12. Numbers 15.38 and 39 says this, Speak to the children of Israel, the people of Israel. And remember, Jesus was a part of the people of Israel. He was Jewish. So this would have been a commandment to him as part of the people of Israel. Speak to the people of Israel. Tell them to make tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and to put a blue thread in the tassels of the corners. And you shall have the tassel that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them. That's what was stipulated in Numbers 15, 38, and 39. Since that was prescribed by God in the law, in the Mosaic law, and since Jesus was obedient to the law throughout his life, he would have had these tassels on the hem of his garment. If you had seen Jesus walking around in the ancient land of Israel, he would have had tassels on his garment in obedience to Old Testament Scripture. And that's probably what the people reached out to touch. By the way, where did they get the idea to do that? Maybe you remember. Back in chapter 5, the previous chapter, there was a woman who was healed of a serious blood hemorrhage by doing this very thing, and evidently the word spread. All she had to do was touch the tassel, and it healed her multiple-year blood hemorrhage. Please notice here in this text that nothing is said about the people believing in Jesus for salvation. Did you notice that? I think it's safe to say that most did not. They came to Jesus for healing, received their healing, and went away excited that they were no longer encumbered and restrained by their physical debilitation. Just think about all the people that Jesus healed or performed a miracle for, whether it was multiplying bread, turning water into wine. Think of all the people that Jesus healed ministered to miraculously, or maybe I should say it this way, think of all the people Jesus served in some way miraculously who never repented of their sins to receive his salvation and forgiveness. We know this was the case because Matthew chapter 11 records the strong rebuke Jesus gave to the people 
of Capernaum, Chorazin, and Bethsaida, who had seen and experienced most of his miracles, yet did not repent. That's not to say that none of the people who experienced his miracles repented, because some certainly did, but many did not. For instance, when ten lepers came to Jesus for healing, he healed all ten. You remember the story from Luke's Gospel. Then they all turned and went their own way, with only one returning even to give thanks. So I think it's safe to say that most people who received the benefits of Jesus' miracles did not repent and receive his salvation. We see the same thing in the feeding of the 5,000. We know for a fact that very few of that group, 20 to 25,000 people, very few, if any, wanted anything to do with what Jesus had to offer them spiritually. The text in John 6 makes that perfectly clear. They took the free food, but they didn't want the salvation Jesus offered. As I thought about that reality in the ministry of Jesus, it made me wonder how much pressure we feel today to do good and helpful things for people only if we believe it may lead to their salvation. Now, granted, we want everyone to come to faith in our Lord. That's what we want. That's what we desire. But we don't need to feel the pressure to make sure that everyone we show kindness to listens to and responds to the gospel. That's what we want. And our prayer is that our kindness to others will open the door for interaction about the gospel. But you know very well it doesn't always go that way. Just like it usually didn't go that way in the ministry of Jesus. He was known as a man of unrestricted compassion. In Acts 10.38, Peter described him as a man, listen to this phrase, it's phenomenal, a man who went about doing good. Isn't that a great description? Don't you want to have that kind of testimony and reputation in life? Don't you want to be known as someone who just goes around doing good? That's what Jesus did. And that's what we should do. And as we do, we should pray that it opens up doors to present the gospel to people so they will give their lives to Christ. That's our greatest and deepest desire. But, beloved, many times we won't have that opportunity. And we don't need to feel the pressure to force it or make it happen. Like our master, we should do good for people and minister to people out of compassion. And when that opens a door to point someone to Christ, we ought to gladly take that opportunity. But many times that just doesn't happen. Yet that should not stop us from doing good and ministering to people whenever we can. We don't see Jesus here on this occasion saying something like this. You know, I don't think most of these people are going to repent of their sins and receive my salvation. So I'm not going to let them touch the hem of my garment. I'm not going to heal them. No. No. He ministered to people physically and tangibly because it was right to do. And whenever that opened people's hearts to salvation, he called them to repentance and faith. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't exercise wisdom in giving to people. Please hear this. We certainly don't want to reinforce their wrong focus. In other words, there comes a time 
when it is wise to stop giving to people who are simply taking advantage of the situation and we are only reinforcing their wrong focus. Jesus did this in John 6 after he fed the thousands. They started following him around just to get free food and he refused to accommodate them. He knew it wouldn't be a good thing to keep pandering to their horizontal focus and giving them free food. So he pulled away. He stopped. And we need to make the same call sometimes. That's why it takes wisdom from the Lord. We can't run on autopilot throughout our lives. We need to seek the Lord for his wisdom as we walk through life and as we make decisions about how to minister to people and when to minister to people and when we need to make sure we're not feeding an unhealthy dependence on our benevolence. It's not a set formula. You know that. It's one of the most complicating things about the Christian life. One of the most difficult aspects is knowing where to make those kinds of judgment calls. It's not a set formula. On this occasion... Jesus allowed the people to gather as many sick people as they could gather, and he allowed them to touch the hem of his garment. And then there's the astounding statement right there at the end, and as many as touched him were made well. In Matthew's account of this story, it's an intensified verb in the Greek text. So you could say it this way, they were cured and boy were they cured. They were made perfectly whole. Not just sort of. Not just kind of. Not just a little better. Perfectly whole. Let me explain what I mean. If they had a severe fever, they didn't, they didn't have to go home and rest a little while to get over the last little bit. You know, the after effects. They walked away completely cured. If they were crippled in their legs... They didn't have to limp away and gain a little strength over the next few days for their walking to come back to fullness. No. They could have sprinted out of there. If they had been blind, they didn't have to wait a few days for the fuzziness to dissipate slowly. You know, use some eye drops for a little while till the, you know, to, to get, till the clarity comes. No. They left there with 20-20 vision or better. If they had previously been mute... They didn't have to practice for a little while to learn how to talk, stumble around. They would, have been, they would have been able to give a full-length speech. If they had previously been paralyzed, they didn't have to, they didn't have to give their limbs some time to build up muscles within, strength from, from, you know, being dormant. They were able to walk and carry their children in their arms. If they were deaf, they didn't have to learn the skill of deciphering various sounds. They knew exactly what they were hearing. If they had leprosy, they didn't have to wash off the healed scabs, put a little ointment on for a few days. No, their skin was soft and smooth as a baby's. Whatever the infirmity, it was completely and thoroughly healed. Isn't that mind-boggling? Think about the life change for these people. Some of them, because we're given a glimpse of this in the Gospels, some of them had, had these things for years and years. And in an instant, their life was radically changed. That's the way Jesus healed all these who were brought to him. And he healed them simply by allowing them to touch the hem of his garment. 
It was a marvelous demonstration of unrestricted compassion. And it was compassion, don't, don't forget this, it was compassion shown to those who for the most part would take the benefit and walk away without giving any thought to the most important gift Jesus freely offered, which was salvation from sin. Astounding. So what about you? Think about this. Do you enjoy the gracious gifts that our Lord gives without any thought of what is most important? Do you take for granted food to eat, air to breathe, life to live, pleasure to enjoy without any thought of your eternal destiny? Tragically, this same scenario continues to be repeated time and time again in the lives of those who enjoy the graciousness of our Lord, His great and magnificent gifts without any thought of what is most important. Do you ever think about that in life? And I do all the time. I especially think about it on Sundays, driving back and forth to church, seeing people who are maybe out doing something that's fun, enjoyable. It's a gift from God. Maybe they're out working in the yard, you know, doing something. And I think, man, those people enjoying life, enjoying the ability to get out and work in the lawn, work with their flowers, enjoying God's gifts without any thought of God whatsoever. Without any thought of His, of his goodness, without any thought of their eternal destiny. If that is you, I urge you to wake up before it's too late. Realize that the most important issue you will ever come to terms with is a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith. Receive Him and His salvation. Let's bow together as we close. As you bow your heads this morning, in the few minutes we have remaining, I want to encourage you to think about that, that aspect of life, the fact that there are so many good things God gives us in life. Food to eat, air to breathe, life to live, pleasure to enjoy. And then you could take your own life and just add the specifics. Good things that God gives us. And are you one of those who receives all those good things? one who experiences all those good things, but you never give any thought to your eternal destiny. You never give any thought to who it is that gives you all these good and gracious gifts. If that is you, wake up. Wake up before it's too late. Receive Jesus Christ and His greatest gift, the gift of forgiveness the gift of salvation. In humble, simple, childlike faith, call out to the Lord in repentance and in faith to receive Jesus Christ. Father, as we think about this text we've considered this morning, very brief set of verses and yet profound especially if we just stop to contemplate, trying to picture what this was like to have Jesus come ashore and before he could hardly even get off the boat and out into the community, word was spreading. People were flocking to him. 
multitudes, crowds carrying sick people, maybe dragging demon-possessed loved ones, just wanting to touch the Master. What an amazing display of unrestricted compassion from our Lord. But we know that His compassion had a purpose. Certainly it was to show love to people. But beyond that, it was to show people that there is a greater gift than healing, a greater gift than demon deliverance. There is the gift of salvation, the gift of forgiveness, the gift of eternal life, which tragically and amazingly so many in the first century disregarded and rejected so that Jesus had to rebuke the people of his day for seeing so many miracles but not repenting. Oh, Father, our hearts are burdened at the thought that that could be happening right here in our midst, that there could be people right here this morning repeating that same scenario, seeing the goodness of, uh, of the Lord in their lives, seeing your goodness in their lives, but, but not repenting, not turning to Christ by faith. Lord, do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to wake them up, to bring them around, to bring them to the point of humility and simple childlike faith to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose magnificent name we pray. Amen.